Lord, thank You for Your Word. And as we dig in, Father, I pray that You would speak to us. pray that You would bring Your words to life and that our hearts, our minds would be opened and that we would be undistracted, but we would be totally focused on hearing from You, God, and learning of You. So I pray that You would bless this time of study. And even this is, is our worship unto You, God. So be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay. Alright, so as I mentioned, Paul has uh, completed his first missionary journey. And then there are three total recorded in the book of Acts. And then there was a little bit of a pause where they came together for what is called the, the Jerusalem Council, which is what we looked at last week. People were trying to say that uh, you still had to convert to Judaism first before you could become a Christian. That it was necessary to keep the laws of Moses as well as putting your faith and, and trust in Christ for salvation. So it was a hybrid of salvation through faith in addition to the works of the law. And so Paul fought that. Paul was one who had been saved out of legalism and he wasn't about to let legalism creep into the church and take over. So they went to uh, Judea and they had the, the council there, the Jerusalem council, and they determined that salvation came by grace alone. And that is wonderful news for all of us. And we are recipients of this. We are those who have been saved by grace through faith and the finished work of the cross. And so uh, we kind of left off last week with Paul determining that he was going to go out now on his second missionary journey and he was going to revisit all of those churches that they had planted in their first journey and they were going to hand to them the, the, what the council had determined. But you'll recall Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them and Paul did not. So there was a sharp dispute there and they parted ways. So Barnabas went his way with John Mark and Paul took Silas with him and then they launched out into what is their second missionary journey. So today we'll look at the, um, the map quite a bit. It's a map heavy time in, in the book of Acts as we're looking at the, uh, the missionary journeys of Paul, but we'll get to that in, in a minute. So with that, we'll pick up in verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. Okay, so now Paul is, is back in Derby, uh, Derby and, and Lystra for the second time. And you may recall the last time he was here, first he was worshipped, he and Barnabas were worshipped as Zeus and Hermes. Remember that? They said the gods have come down in the likeness of men and they began to sacrifice to them and Paul and Barnabas ran out in the midst of all of that and did their best to stop it. And then, uh, not much longer after that, the people turned on them and then Paul was stoned. And supposing he was dead, they left him there for dead, but he, he got back up and went back into the city. And that was pretty much the end of that journey. Um, 
they backtracked back from Derby and Lystra through all the towns they had come through and went back to Antioch. So now launching off in the second journey, they go back through this same area, which is crazy to me. But that is the boldness and the, the courage of Paul. So this time he picks up a, a young disciple named Timothy. And Timothy was very young at this point. He may have been in his late teens, early 20s. And uh, the fact that Timothy was, um, his father was Greek and, and people knew that, he just decided to be uh, circumcised so not to be a stumbling block to the Jews. That says a lot to me about Timothy. Now, Timothy didn't have to do this. And this was not a, a salvation issue. Remember, we talked about that just last week. Uh, should the Gentiles be circumcised? Should they follow the, the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant? And that had already been determined, no. But Timothy was going to have a real ministry amongst the Jews. Everywhere Paul went, he would go first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. So Timothy was willing to do that so as not to be a stumbling block, so not to be hindered in his ministry to the Jews. I always found it odd how they would even know whether he was or wasn't is, is you know, a mystery to me. But at any rate, I guess he played it safe and, and, and went that direction. We're told that Timothy was a young man of, of great reputation and character. He was well spoken of by the brothers there. And so, Timothy is one that I've always liked. He's always been a, a, a guy in the Bible that I've looked up to in a lot of ways. And there's a lot said about him in the Scriptures. And uh, one thing in particular that always stood out to me, Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, and he's speaking about Timothy years later, this is what he says, and it's in your notes, Philippians 2.20. He says, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. So that is Timothy's character. You know, Paul said there are a lot of people that aren't concerned about the things of Christ. They're looking out for themselves, but not Timothy. Timothy, he cares about Christ and the things of Christ, and you know that he has served with me in the gospel as a son with his father. And so I've always thought that is, that is great. And uh, we know that Timothy um, was kind of pegged as a, as a timid guy. Paul was regularly giving him uh, admonitions not to be afraid and not to have anxiety, but that there's boldness in the Lord. Um, and tradition has, has told us that ultimately Timothy went on to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus and he died there, that he was martyred. He was actually beaten to death by a pagan mob, beaten by clubs. Uh, in the middle of a, a pagan uh, worship ceremony, he ran out into the middle of it trying to stop it, and they beat him to death right there on the spot. So Timothy was a man of courage when it was all said and done. He was a man who lived for the Lord. He had a radical life and ministry with Paul. He was very close to Paul. He was a protege of Paul's. He was a son in the faith, and he served faithfully all the way to the death. And so here we see Paul taking him on the very beginning of it. He's launching out into ministry with Paul on his second missionary journey. And I think Timothy knew what he was getting himself into. I don't know that John Mark knew what he was getting himself into when he went off with Paul and Barnabas and he kind of left halfway through. But I don't doubt that Timothy knew about Paul being stoned the first time that he came through Lystra 
And so for him to go with Paul now, I think he knew what he was signing up for. That says a lot to me about Timothy. Alright, well verse 6 here. It says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is very fascinating to me. Now they determine that they're going to go in a couple different directions, and every time they are forbidden by the Holy Spirit. I would say this is kind of the first time this theme pops up in this chapter, which I would say is God is in control. That, that seems to be the theme here. We use the word sovereign oftentimes, that, and that is simply what that means. God is in charge. God is in control. God is not um, a servant to circumstances. He's not a victim of circumstances. Ultimately, He is in control of what happens. Some of that is a mystery to us. We talk about God's perfect will and we talk about God's permissive will, things that He allows to happen and somehow He's still able to work His will out perfectly in the midst of all of that. But as we look at this chapter, I would say that's the thing that, that stands out to me the most is just how in control God is throughout this this whole situation, this whole chapter. And we see it happen here as they determine they're going to go and they are forbidden by the Spirit. And so, I guess this is a good time for, for the map. So, media people, if you would put that up. Now, I was told that no one could ever see the, the laser pointer. So, I got another one and now this one's too bright, they tell me. Um, I was going to get one that was brighter than this, and Pastor Bill was like, um, Rob, that one comes with safety glasses, so you might not want to do that. And I said, okay, and this one's still just a little too bright, but at least you can see it. Alright, so as I said, that's Antioch, that's where Paul has um, traditionally been stationed, and he, he goes out. So he came up here, here's Lystra, that's where Timothy would be at. And so they picked up Timothy and Lystra and Derby, and they were going to go up here to, here's Bithynia and Mycenae. Either way they went, they were blocked by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that in a second. So then ultimately they end up over here in Troas, and they're going to go from Troas to this little island here, Samothrace, and then they're going to go to Neapolis and then into Philippi. So this is Macedonia. And this is very significant because they go from Asia up into Europe. And so we're going to see the gospel at this point today will... Uh, we'll pass from, uh, as I said, Asia into Europe. So that's a, that's a very big deal. Alright, so that does it for the map. Thank you very much. Um, so, just a couple of thoughts. How exactly were they forbidden by the Spirit? We don't know. We don't know. It could be circumstances, you know, um, as they were trying to go, the doors were shut. And I think we all know what that's like. There are, there are, all of us as Christians can relate. We're doing our best to understand God's will. We go for it. Doors just seem to close as we go. And we oftentimes have to chalk that up to, well, I guess it was not the Lord's will for us to go that route. And then for us, the danger sometimes is trying to break the door down, right? And again, that's something that we can all relate to is... Uh, trying not to do, do that, discerning the difference between a closed door and, 
and when it's just a challenge for us. It could be that it came by prophecy. Silas is on the team now. We were told in the last chapter that Silas was a prophet. And so it could simply be that that, uh, Silas heard from the Lord that these doors were closed to them, that they were not to go to Bithynia or Mycenae. And so I guess I'm encouraged to know that that our God, He guides us. You know, our God is not a God who's so far away and and not involved with our lives, but He's he's very present. He's our ever-present help in time of need, and He does seek to lead us and to guide us. And oftentimes I will pray, God, close this door if it's not Your will. I find comfort and safety in that, don't you? I mean, there are times when I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, but I know that it could go bad, and I'm just thinking, God, if this is not Your will, close the door. And we see that He does that. But I would also say, are we people who can be led? Are we people that can be led by the Spirit? Um, I think that's an important thing to consider. Are we concerned with being led by the Spirit. And that's something that, that we have to think through. Uh, you know, day by day, do we open ourselves up to the Lord daily? God, lead me today with the big decisions in our life. I think we have things that are heavy on our hearts, things that we really want to do, but do we filter that through, Lord, is this your will? And then do we uh, submit ourselves to it? When, when the doors close, can we say, okay, Lord, I, I trust that it was not your will? And uh, I, I will wait till I hear from you. I will wait till the door opens. Um, sometimes going is, is the hard part. Sometimes when the door opens, that's really scary, right? And so it takes faith to, to walk through the open door sometimes. And so having a willingness to go, because sometimes we won't go when God is telling us to go. Sometimes the Spirit is leading us and we won't do what He's asking us to do. And so it's uh, being a people who, who were open to God's leading. And you know, when the doors closed, you know what that meant? There was an open door somewhere else. And so we shouldn't look at a closed door as, okay, well, I guess that's it for me. I'll just give up and, and go back to this or that. No, when a door closes, I oftentimes get excited because I think, okay, God's doing something somewhere else. And so I, I don't, I'm a person, I can't sit still for long. I like to see God do new things. And uh, when certain things close, close up, I get excited about the prospect of a new work, a new move that God is doing. And so they were led in that way. Now, when they got to Troas, they received a, a vision. Paul received a vision from a man saying, please come to Macedonia, help us. We don't know who this, who this guy is in this vision. But one thing that's significant here is that Luke says, we determined that that was of the Lord. We concluded that God was calling us to Macedonia. And so they went. Notice that it changes to we. We. And that's the first time you see that here. So up to this point, Luke has not been an eyewitness to, to these things. He's, uh, he's heard these things from other people. He's... He's documented them, written them down, but now Luke has joined the team. So evidently Luke was in Troas at this point when Paul shows up and he joins the team and now it becomes we, but only for a short period while they're in Philippi, but then after that it goes back to they again. So it seems as though perhaps Luke actually stays in Philippi. So they meet up in Troas, they go to Philippi, and then when they leave Philippi it's very likely that Luke stays behind there. So at least at this point in the story, 
Luke is a part of the missionary team, and you see the change there. All right, verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day we came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. So as I already showed you on the map, they were in Troas. That was still in Asia Minor. Then they sailed across to that little island there. That was about the halfway point. That was Samothrace. And then into Neapolis, which was a port of entry, a port city there. And then it was right next to Philippi. Then they went into Philippi. I have a very lengthy uh, quote in your notes. I'm not going to read that to you. But that, that, that is there for you if you're interested. And you don't have to read it right now. In fact, I would say don't. You can read it afterwards. Uh, but for those of you who love history and uh, get into that kind of stuff, there's a lot of cool stuff here, a lot of cool insight about Philippi. I just don't have time to get into all of this right now, but that is there for you. All right, so now that they're in Philippi, we're going to see them get into action. They're going to be ministering, doing ministry in Philippi, and as I'd already mentioned, God is in control. And we saw that as God closed the doors in Mycenae and Bithynia and called them to come to Macedonia. So we see God is in control as He is leading them. And now we're going to see how God is in control as they are ministering to the different people. And there's going to be three main people, three major players in uh, Philippi who really become the first members of the Philippian church. And the first one we're going to see here is, uh, is uh, a businesswoman named Lydia. So, verse 13 and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Alright, so here we go. Paul is in Philippi, and he goes, uh, as would be uh, normal for him, he would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he would start by preaching to the Jews from the Old Testament about the, the Christ and how Jesus was the Messiah. But evidently, there was the Jewish population here was almost non-existent altogether. They had to have at least ten Jewish men, heads of households, to have a synagogue. And if they didn't have that, then they would generally go to a river or somewhere like that and they would pray. And so evidently they didn't have a synagogue. So Paul goes to the river and there are some women here that have come together to, to pray and, and to worship God. And one of them in particular is this lady named Lydia. And we're told that she is a seller of purple. And I think the ESV says a seller of purple goods. So the idea ultimately here is, is purple dye. Uh, it's very rare and it was very expensive. And so most often it would be used for royalty. Um, robes and things of that sort. You'll remember that they put a, a purple robe on Jesus when they were mocking Him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And, and so she was a seller of, of either this dye, this ink, or actual clothing that was dyed purple. And she seemed to be very well off. She seemed to be a successful business lady. And this is the first one that Paul encounters. And we're told here that the Lord opened her heart. 
The Lord opened her heart to heed the things that Paul was saying. And so now I would say that God is in control in salvation. God is in control in the things regarding uh, eternal life, life in Christ. And this, this can get really uh, controversial because people take very different sides of this equation. And I'll take just a moment to, to expound on this a little bit. But one thing that the Scriptures clearly teach is that we were all separated from God. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. That the natural man the, uh, is we're separated from God and uh, we're enemies of God even. But God has demonstrated His love in that He sent His Son to die for us even when we were enemies. Okay, So it was God's heart, it was God's plan to, to redeem us, not to leave us in that state, but to save us. And then we would no longer be enemies of God, but we would be beloved children of God. But having said that, the Scriptures seem to indicate that we can't just come to God on our own. We won't come to God on our own because we are totally blind to spiritual things and we are living for the temporal things, the here and the now. And Jesus said in uh, John, I think it's chapter 6, that no one comes to Me unless the Father draws Him. No one comes to Me unless the Father draws Him. But He says, I will by no means cast out or turn away anyone who comes to Me. So we believe that, that God will speak to a person's heart. By the Holy Spirit, He will convict a person of their sins. And then in that moment, they have a choice to make. Are they going to put their trust in Christ? Are they going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Or are they going to altogether reject that? Now, there are two different sides to this. And, and I'm going to get a little more theological here with you now. I'm going to use some theological terms. There's monergistic salvation and synergistic salvation Okay, for, for those theologians of you out there. And monergistic salvation says that, that the whole act of our salvation is uh, entirely on God and we have nothing to do with it. God chose us. God determined that we would be saved before the foundations of the earth and that at a given point in time, God opens our eyes and we are regenerated. Period. We were called, we were chosen, we were predestined. And they would say that regeneration precedes faith. That we were saved and then we were able to put our faith in Christ. That's, that's really what you hear are talking about when you hear the term Calvinism. Okay? And synergistic salvation is to say that we kind of work in partnership with God. That it's, it's both sides. God will open our eyes. He will touch our hearts. He will convict us of our sins. We will come underneath that conviction. But we're not forced to respond. We, we have a choice to make at that point in time. And so then we can either receive it, we can acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner, God is for real, and, and Jesus is His Son, and I have sinned against Him, and He is the way to salvation. You can respond to it, or you can reject it. And so that is the, the idea of synergistic salvation. And so Calvary Chapel, our stance is, is the Bible somehow seems to indicate both. And it's a mystery to us. I can't understand all of God's ways. All I know is that God is very much in control. God is very much a sovereign God. And the Bible teaches that in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world, we've been predestined uh, to be adopted as 
children of, of God as sons and daughters. But the Bible also indicates that we can, we can reject that. We can refuse that. And if, um, Hebrews especially. You know, there's a verse where it says that, um, you know, do not, uh, if you hear His voice, do not turn away or do not reject it as in the day uh, in the wilderness and the, the sons and daughters of disobedience, something like that. I'm, I'm totally butchering it. Um, but the Bible seems to indicate both. So that's our stance. We believe that God is in control. We believe that we don't really, we're not really seeking after God. No one seeks after God. No one does good. No, not one. The Scriptures clearly teach that. But God opened Lydia's heart to heed the things that Paul was saying, and she responded to it. She received the Gospel. And uh, she and her whole household were baptized. And it appears that this was uh, the, the meeting place of the Philippian church. The Philippian church started and they met in Lydia's household. Well, now we're going to move on to the next, the next person. And this is the, the, a slave girl. She's a demon-possessed slave girl in verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and... He came out that very hour. So we have this, this young lady here who, who uh, was a slave, and she made money for her masters through her ability to tell people's fortunes. Now, we know that most people who claim to do this kind of thing, they're, it's, it's a, a sham. It's, it's some sort of a hustle that they have going on. But evidently what she was doing on some level was legitimate to a degree because she was operating under dark forces, dark powers, some sort of an evil spirit, a, a spirit of divination. The, the word for divination actually is uh, pythona. It is to say literally she had a spirit of pythona. I'll read the, the quote here from Boyce. It's in your notes. It says that it actually says she had a spirit of pythona. That doesn't mean much to most of us, which is why it is not translated literally. But pythona was a certain kind of snake, obviously a python. It is used here because the python was associated with the god Apollo, not far from Philippi in this very area of Europe. There was a shrine to the Pythian Apollo. Now, I, I bring all that up because I was thinking this was kind of interesting. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaking, uh, verse 19, again it's in your notes, Paul is dealing with idol worship. And he says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. But I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So Paul is saying that, you know what? Idols, pagan idols, they're not gods because there is no God but our God. And so it's a stupid, empty thing. But... He also indicates that 
that demons can inhabit idols. And so when people are worshiping idols, these pagan idols, sometimes they don't even realize it, but they're worshiping and sacrificing to demons. And so I was thinking it is possible that if this girl was some sort of an idol worshiper and she was worshiping this particular idol, that uh, somehow she may have received an evil spirit or a demon through this worship. And that was how she was legitimately able from on some level or, or another to be able to foretell fu- people's futures and so on and so forth. So it was, it was demonic. And so the, the point I, I make there is we, you have to be so careful with the stuff that we toy around with. Some people play around with some really dark stuff. You know, I don't even like to, you know, like they have scary movies out there and they have some movies that I mean that are terrifying, especially when they deal with demonic type stuff, possession and, and stuff like that. There are, I won't name the movies, but there was one in particular just a few years ago. I, I, I learned of it somewhere and I really wanted to see the movie because it sounded so scary. And I had heard that they actually consulted the... Um, church of satan to try to really make these things as accurate and close to the real thing as possible and obviously i didn't watch the movie but we we can be attracted to those kinds of things because they're so scary because we know that there's something very real about it i don't play around with that stuff not even a little bit and we see unbelievers who play around with stuff ouija boards and different things and the scriptures seem to indicate that you're messing around with something that's very deep, very dark, very much outside of yourself, and we should not play around with those kinds of things. So Christian, especially you, I would tell you, stay away from that kind of stuff. Don't play around with it. Don't be, uh, don't, don't be attracted to it. Uh, because it seems to indicate here that this girl did and ended up becoming uh, possessed as a result of it. Well, Paul was greatly annoyed. I found comfort in that. Paul was greatly annoyed by this. She was following them around for days, crying out that these are the servants of the Most High God and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this went on for days. So that's, you know, that's really patient on Paul's part, but finally he just got annoyed and he cast the, the evil spirit out of her. It made me feel a little bit better because I just get annoyed sometimes. Don't you get annoyed sometimes? And that's okay. Paul got annoyed. So if he could do that, we can do that. But more than that, I think, you know, the enemy has people that are just specially hand-selected to annoy us. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I think a lot of us probably have that person in our life where it's like that person is an agent of the enemy if there ever was one. And they 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 are used solely for the purpose of driving us crazy. And so uh, we see that happening here, and Paul finally just gets fed up with it and turns around and says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. Now what she was saying was true. That was very true, but the reality is Paul didn't want or need demonic endorsement. You know, they say you can tell a lot by a person's friend and their enemy. And Paul didn't want to be... uh, Advert, he didn't need the advertisement of an evil spirit or of a, someone who was possessed by a demon. So Paul cast that demon out of her. Well, her, her owners took great offense at that. So verse 19, When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. 
Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so her masters were infuriated that their loss of income, uh, they lost their income. And so they apprehended Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the magistrates and they said, these men being Jews trouble our city exceedingly. You know, and they're trying to get us to, to uh, engage in these religious things that are uh, really outlawed according to our Roman customs. That was what they were, were saying here. And we can see just the hate towards the Jews first and foremost. And that isn't surprising to me because as I said, there, there really doesn't seem to be any Jewish community here whatsoever. They didn't even have enough to, to have a synagogue. So these slave owners drag Paul and Silas to the magistrates and say, these guys, you know, they're Jews and they're, they're trying to get us to engage in this religion that's, that's banned. And, you know, initially the Christians were just, they were seen as a sect of, of Judaism and they were not a threat. They were, not a, they were a non-issue. And so the Romans didn't really have a problem with them, but eventually they did. And as they became very distinct, they became their own thing. Uh, the, the, a lot of the Romans even saw Christians as atheists. That's what they would call them oftentimes because they refused to worship all the gods or Caesar in particular. So they had a real disdain for Christians and they were called atheists. I don't really know if we're to that point yet, but at any rate, I know that the, uh, they were singled out. They were taken before the magistrates. They had their, their shirts torn off. They were beaten with rods. And then they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was told to put them in uh, into the inner prison. So he took them uh, into the securest part and fastened their, their feet into the stocks. And one commentator said this was designed to pull their feet as far apart as possible, and uh, it would have been extremely painful, a lot of cramping in their legs and, and feet, and they had been beaten all over their backs, and they're in the inner dungeon in these stocks. So you don't really expect uh, what you see next here. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. It's amazing to me that in that condition, at midnight, they were praying and singing to the Lord, singing hymns to God. And, and I note here that the, the prisoners were listening to them significant to me that it points that out this to me is true maturity and a powerful witness um, these guys were serving the lord they were doing what god had called them to do and then they're apprehended they're beaten ruthlessly they're put in the stocks and in prison and at midnight what are they doing they're singing to the lord they're singing to god and, and everyone around them is is noticing this that to me is beautiful because how often the smallest thing happens to us and we just think, why God? And we're complaining or, or crying out. And sometimes we face serious things and we may question God or, 
or challenge God's character or His goodness or question, did He really call us to do this? Was this really God's will? And here they were not doing any of that. They were singing to the Lord. Beaten and bloodied and chained up in prison. They're singing and praising God in the, in the night watch. And that to me is a very high view of God. God is God. God is faithful. God is good. And God can do whatever He wants to do. And we are His servants. We are His beloved children. But we, we need to, we, I think we could all take a lesson from this and learn to trust God in the hard times. And know that even when it's hard, even when bad things are happening, God deserves to be praised. God is worthy of our worship. Just as much in the, in the bad as in the good. And so they had a high view of God. They didn't question God. They didn't challenge Him. They praised and worshipped Him. And this had a huge effect on the jailer and the people in the jail. You know, that's when our witness is at its, uh, when it's most powerful. People are watching how we respond to difficulties and hardships. And people see that we still trust God. We still love God. We don't challenge Him. We don't question Him. We honor Him. That speaks volumes to, to the world and to unbelievers, to people that God has called us to be a witness to. And, and such was the case here. Well, God is, is all-powerful and He demonstrates this again. God is in control. So He shakes the, the jail with an earthquake. The doors open. The, the chains fall off. And the jailer assumes that everyone has escaped and he's going to kill himself now because ultimately, if they did escape, he probably would have been killed uh, by the authorities. He would have been put to death for, for losing the inmates. And we see that kind of thing pop up a few times in the book of Acts. So he thought that it was all over, so he's getting ready to kill himself. And then verse 29, excuse me, yeah, Paul had already called out and said, uh, do yourself no harm, we're all here. So verse 29, then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them uh, that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So we've seen Lydia come to Christ, we assume that the slave girl, when she was set free, that, that she came to, to the Lord. And now we see the jailer here who he runs in. It's strange to me that that's the question that he asks. You know, the, the jail is shaken by the earthquake. The doors fly open. No one escapes. He runs in, finds out they're all here. And his question now is, what must I do to be saved? That's very interesting to me. But I mean, that's like a preacher's dream right there. I would say any Christian's dream, really. They, that, they love that question. And so that was what he asked. What must I do to be saved? And that's what it's all about. I mean, there are so many reasons why people come to Christ and there are so many reasons people give as to why we should come to Christ. But at its core, it's this. We need to be saved. Uh, we, as I said before, are separated from God in our sins. And our sins need to be paid for. And we're going to have to pay for those sins unless Christ pays for those sins. And somehow this guy had enough insight to know that Paul and Bar uh, Silas 
were the real deal, and they knew the way to God. And so he comes in and falls down before them. He understands God is trying to get a hold of this guy. God intervenes in his life through this situation, and he realizes that he needs God, and he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And this word believe here, it's, it's so much more than just, okay, yes, I believe that, that there is a Jesus. Yes, I believe that He existed and that He died and that He rose again. It's more than that. You have to put your, your trust in that. You have to surrender your life to Him, to the Lordship of Christ. It's one thing to just simply believe that He existed. It's another thing to believe on Him unto salvation and to surrender to Him, to bow the knee to His Lordship and to give your life to Jesus, to really trust Him for salvation. To really put your faith in the fact that He is who He says He is. You are who He says you are. And that salvation comes through Him and Him alone. And that if you put your trust, your, all of your belief in Him on that, you will be saved. And then we, we, we turn from our sins and we, we walk with Him. And that's what they're telling Him. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So the jailer did. He and his whole household were saved. They were baptized. They uh, washed their wounds. They fed them. And then verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to uh, depart from that city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had greeted the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So everything that had happened to Paul and Silas was illegal. First, they didn't receive a hearing, a fair hearing. They were rushed right into being punished. Then they were beaten, but they were Roman citizens. And they were protected under Roman law from this very thing. And Philippi was a Roman colony. It's in those, that paragraph on your notes. And they enjoyed uh, many privileges and rights as such. And so it was highly illegal for Paul to be beaten like this. And they assumed that they were Jews, that they were not Roman. And so when they found out, uh-oh, these guys didn't get a fair hearing, they were beaten illegally, and now they're, they're saying so. And they're like, no, no, we're not just going to leave. Why don't you come here and let us out? So now Paul's really putting it in their face, and they're scared, and rightfully so, because there could be some serious consequences that come down on the magistrates for, for doing this. Now, it's interesting to me because later in Acts, Paul's going to find himself in a similar situation. They're getting ready to beat him, and then he says, hey, by the way, is it lawful to do this to a Roman citizen? And then they, they back up. But he didn't do that here. He let it happen. And some have suggested that Paul actually did this to back them into a corner. That way, when he left, that the, the little fledgling church there of the Philippians would have a little bit of leeway with, with the law there because the law knew they messed up and they messed up bad. So Paul endured a beating and then turned around and, and told them so in the hopes that they would back off 
and go easy on the Philippian church. That's, it's very possible that that is what happened. So then we're told that they came, they begged him to leave, so he did. And they went to Lydia's house, they, they greeted the brethren, they spoke with them, met with them, and then they departed from Philippi. And so as I said, what you see over and over throughout this whole chapter is God is in control. God is, is leading them. God uh, you know, opens Lydia's heart to receive the things of, of God and God is in control there. And, and we, we're, we're grateful for that. We pray that, do we not, regularly. That gives me comfort. We can pray for people and know that God can open people's hearts. God can open people's eyes to the things of the Lord, to the things of salvation. God's in control there. And then God was in control even when He broke the doors open in the jail and shook the, the chains off the people. God is in control. Our God is a big God. He is a God that is worthy to be praised. He is a, a God who is in charge and control of all things. And I just want to do His will, don't you? So we'll close with that. Heavenly Father, we love You and we acknowledge that You are sovereign. You are a big God. You are in control, Lord. And we pray that You would be in control of our lives. We want to submit our lives to You afresh here today. Lord, have Your way in our hearts and our minds. Be the Lord of our lives. Lead us, God. Open doors. Close doors. Use us, Father. Be honored. Be glorified. Be magnified in our lives. Praise You, Jesus. Amen. Amen.